Because uh, he knew that we would be dealing with change a lot, one of my professors in seminary spent some time, a few days with us, talking about change and how change works in a group of people. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but he was teaching us something, a sociological phenomenon called the diffusion of innovation. That's a wonderful word. Uh, The diffusion of innovation, it refers to how innovation or how change spreads among a group of people. The person who popularized these theories of the diffusion of innovation was a man by the name of Everett Rogers. And in the early 20th century, he spent some time studying rural farmers. Oh, we're in Lancaster County. This is good. And uh, he, he studied these rural farmers to see how quickly change moved through the community, how quickly some were to adapt new seeds or new pieces of equipment or new land management techniques. And he traced how the change happened in the community. And he divided, basically, people into five groups. There are the small number, about 2.5% of people in any group's are called innovators. These are the ones who are coming up with the new ideas and inviting people to join them. Two and a half percent, a very small percentage. Then there's a group of people, 13 and a half percent or so, called early adopters. They're the ones, when they hear the new idea, they say, why haven't we done that before? That's brilliant. Let's do it yesterday. Early adopters. Then there's a group of people, about 34% of them, and they're called the early majority. And the early majority are people who are open to the new ideas and just want to hear why the idea is supposed to work, and they want to know the facts and the figures and the projections. And, and if you convince them reasonably, they'll, they'll jump on board with you, the early majority. Now, the other third, another third, is what's called the late majority. These are people who not only do they need to hear the facts and figures of the new idea, they also need to be convinced by peer pressure. Not just whether the idea is good, but they they want a lot of people around them who are actually doing it too. And then the last group of people, 16% of people, and this is not my term, but they are the laggards, uh, traditionalists. People who are fixated on the past. People who every decision they make is based on how past generations would have done or would have thought about it. That's how they evaluate every idea. I don't know what grandpa would have thought of this. Uh, Now, a small group of laggards, a very small group, in fact, you could also describe them, they're the never adopters. They're people who are never, ever, ever going to change. It's a very small percentage of people. I've known some people like that. Um, They usually don't stay anywhere for too long. Uh, Wherever they are, something changes and they move on to somebody else, somewhere else until it changes and then they move on. Um, Whenever I talk to, and this rarely happens to me, but whenever I talk to never adopters uh, about things that are changing in the church, I have two thoughts about them. The first one is, I love you. For Christ's sake, I love you. You're my brother or my sister in Christ. I love you. My second thought when I talk to them is, I'm going to outlive you. So my two strategies with never adopters, love and longevity. That's my strategy. Now, I wonder where maybe you have put yourself in this category. If you would be an innovator or an early adopter or part of the early majority or late majority, or maybe you're in that latter, last category. 
I think this, this research is interesting because it tells us two things about change. First of all, it tells us that you are never going to convince anyone that everyone, excuse me, you're never going to convince everyone that your good idea, your new idea is a good one. It's just impossible to win over everybody. That's not going to happen. The second thing that this tells us is that uh, if you wait to convince everyone before you make any changes, you'll never make any changes at all. Um, Sometimes this happens in small churches. I recognize this in my own life. Sometimes small churches are afraid to make changes because they're afraid that people will leave and they don't think that they can afford to have people leave. So they never want to change every, anything until absolutely everyone is, is convinced. If you don't have the courage or the confidence to change because of your fear of what people are going to do, you're never going to make any changes. Now, the reason that I'm talking to you about this this morning is because we are in the midst of a a section of the book of Acts where change is really significant and uh, a major part, the major turning point in the story of the early church and the story of the book of Acts. I would like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 11 this morning. Acts chapter 11 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to look at this passage of scripture that tells us again about this massive change. Uh, This is one of the most repetitive parts of the book of Acts. God is implementing this change in the church. He is, this has always been his intention, but now Gentiles, this is the change, Gentiles who are non-Jews are being incorporated into this community of followers of Jesus. That's the change. I know it was a long time ago. It's not as startling to us as as it was to them. This is weighty, though. Um, Think about this here. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. The Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. These 39 books that we have right at the beginning of our Bibles are the, the family history of the Jews. It starts in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and he promises Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your family. Then in the course of time, he rescues them from slavery under Egypt. He gives them their own law. He gives them their own land. He makes them the caretakers of the temple where he would dwell. This is a Jewish story. When they disobeyed God uh, by adopting the customs of the people around them, they lost their land. And God gave it back to them. And when he did, they were determined, we are not going to lose it again. We are Jewish people. We live in the Jewish homeland. We follow the Jewish law. And these early Christians were Jews like that. They had an idea. They had an idea of how a Gentile could become a follower of Jesus. If you wanted to be a Gentile follower of Jesus, you had to become Jewish too. You had to be circumcised, had to keep kosher laws. You have to adopt the Old Testament as your own book, your own manual for life. And then you could be a follower of Jesus. But... Here, in Acts 10 and Acts 11, it's a revolution. Gentiles become followers of Jesus without becoming Jews first. Again, this is an old debate. It doesn't seem as revolutionary to us as it did to them. Most of us are Gentile followers of Jesus, and no one here would have had the thought of converting to Judaism before becoming a follower of Jesus But I think this story and this passage touches us in at least two different ways. It helps us, number one, think about our attitude towards people of different ethnicities or people of different 
raises. It helps us to think about the issue of reconciliation. But this passage also tells us about the relationship between the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and culture itself. Uh, Richard Bauckham was a New Testament scholar. He taught for a number of years at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And he wrote a book once called The Bible and Mission. Here's some statistics he gave, and then I'm going to quote him in a minute. Richard Bauckham said this, 90% of the world's Muslims live in one part of the world. 90% of the Muslims live in one part of the world, the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. 88% of the world's Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of the world's Hindus live in India. 25% of the world's Christians, this contrast, 25% of the world's Christians live in Europe. 25% live in Central and South America. 22% live in Africa. 15% and growing rapidly live in Asia. And between 12 and 15% live in North America. Christianity is the only major religion that is spread around the world like this. And Richard Bauckham says this. Almost certainly, Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. And that must say something about it. What does it say about it? And how does Acts chapter 11 actually help us think about what it might say about it? Wait, here, here's what I want to do. I want, I want to walk through this passage. We're going to read it, and I want to surface a couple unique elements here that this telling of the story contributes to our understanding of this change that God is implementing. Secondly, I want to move beyond the borders of this passage a little bit, and I want to think about this relationship between the gospel and culture. This is going to be the most philosophical part of my uh, talk today. Some of you are going to love it. Some of you will endure it, and that will be fine. Then the third thing that I want to do is I want to go to another passage in the Bible where we see this, this, the church working out this, this unity that God is, is forming. How are Jews and Gentiles going to be together in one church? How's that going to work? That issue comes up all the time in the New Testament. It comes up again in Acts 15. We'll be back there in a few months. Um, comes up in Galatians, Ephesians. 1 Corinthians, Colossians, Romans. This is a big deal. That third part of the sermon is where I want to work out some of those practical implications. It also is the opportunity for me to make at least some of you angry. So there's something to look forward to, too. Let's read the text. So Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Acts 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, what's the problem here? Why are they so upset? I I think, for, for one thing, they're criticizing Peter because he's been eating with Gentiles. He is a prominent Jewish follower of Jesus, and apparently by eating with Gentiles, he has violated the kosher regulations that all Jews were supposed to. He was not being faithful to the scriptures, they thought. He was criticizing him. You're eating with Gentiles. That's like a Baptist minister having lunch in a bar. It's just not good, right? Okay, now, the the second, second thing that maybe they're concerned about is the issue of maybe they're a little afraid. During this period of time, 
These Jewish followers of Jesus are not experiencing persecution. They had been persecuted terribly for being followers of Jesus, but the persecution seems to have lifted a little bit. What's going to happen? What is going to happen to them if the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who had been persecuting them now find out that Peter is consorting with Gentiles? He's polluting the good Jewish legacy that they have. What's going to happen to them? How are they going to respond? I actually think that's, that's a major issue in Galatians chapter 2, which maybe we'll go through sometime. But I think that's what's happening here. They're, they're wondering about Peter, if he's really faithful to the law, and they're afraid of what's going to happen if, if people find out that they're, they're already suspicious of them because they're followers of Jesus. What are they, if they find out that we've been consorting with Gentiles, then what's going to happen to us? I think th- those are the questions that are here. Peter here, well, he's the early adopter, isn't he? And he's running into some late adopters. They have questions about this. Well, let's keep reading here. Verse 4. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds, Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. (laughs) If you ever find yourself trying to be more righteous than God, there's something wrong. So, Verse 9, the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and said, and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's a lot of repetition in this story, isn't there? We've we've heard some of these details two or three times between Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. Remember why the Bible repeats things like that. Why does the Bible tell things to us over and over again? Well, the Bible is not like a modern textbook. If you had a textbook in school and it wanted to emphasize some of the main points, it would put things in bold or there'd be call-out boxes or there'd be bulleted points. That's how textbooks emphasize things. There's no bullet points. There's no bold fonts in the Bible. The Bible emphasizes things by repeating them. So we hear this story again and again. God has incorporated into the followers of Jesus Gentiles who do not need to become Jews first. It's possible to be a Gentile and remain a Gentile and become a follower of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, at the same time. This new body that we're reading about in the book of Acts, this thing called the church, 
doesn't have a specified list of forbidden foods. It doesn't have sacred spaces. It doesn't have a calendar of religious holidays. It doesn't have a dress code. Every other religion at this point in time does. It has all of those things. And in fact, uh, this calling that we have as followers of Jesus is not that we love those barriers or love those divisions, dress code, food, sacred spaces, religious holidays. The call to follow Jesus is that we embrace others who don't share those cultural elements. Now, there's a couple things that I want you to see in Acts 11 that are important, that are emphasized uh, in this particular telling of the story to tell us about this reconciliation that God is orchestrating between Jews and Gentiles. And here's the first one. This reconciliation is God's plan. This reconciliation is God's plan. This is part of the story in the book of Acts. I know it, but it's so clear again here. We have to say this a second time. Verse 17, who am I to think that I can stand in God's way? God sends the visions. God sends the people. God sends Peter. God sends the Holy Spirit. There's almost a sense in this story in which every human being is just a, uh, he's just watching. She's just watching God at work as God brings this about. Now, here's why this matters. I think this is why this is important. When we think about racial and ethnic reconciliation and why it matters to us. See, uh, it is part of human nature. It's part of broken human nature to segregate and divide. We do it all the time. It's a story of human history. We divide people by appearance. We divide people by their giftedness, by their taste, by their class, by their income. If you're in ninth grade, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but when you walk into the high school cafeteria and you look around and you see all those, those tables, right? There's the jocks and the geeks and the nerds and the music people and all that. That, it fades a little bit, but not a whole lot. It still kind of happens. But it's God's plan, it's God's plan that the message about Jesus should itself be a reconciling truth. Colossians 3, 9, 11. Look what it says. I wrote it down there. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here we go. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Scott read that very familiar passage from Ephesians chapter 2. In Christ, God is making one new humanity. It's not divided by ethnic or racial boundaries. Whose idea is this? This is God's idea. This is God's intention. Which means, if you resist this, you are resisting God. And I wonder if you think you're able to do that. <laughs> Peter wasn't. Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Maybe you know something about God that Peter doesn't. <laughs> Tomorrow, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Right? Tomorrow is this holiday we have for this man. Sometime over this weekend maybe, or perhaps tomorrow, you'll see on the news a, a portion of that speech, that great speech that he gave in Washington, D.C. so many years ago. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day my children will be judged by the not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. 
Uh, Martin Luther King went to battle in his war of words with two weapons. He had two weapons in his arsenal. The first one that he had was the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if you've watched that whole speech from Washington. It was 16 or 17 minutes long. Uh, One of the things that he said was that we marchers, we have come to Washington, D.C. to cash a check that was written to us almost 200 years ago, and the check says all men are created equal. He went to war with the Declaration of Independence. But Martin Luther King Jr. also went to war with the Bible. I wonder if you agree with what Dr. King said about racial reconciliation. I wonder if you have the philosophical foundation to believe that, to uphold that belief. Uh, it's a very famous letter that he wrote, the letter from the Birmingham jail. He, he says, how do, I t- how do we tell if a law is good or not? A law is only good if it squares with the moral law, with God's law. He said, this is the only way I know to tell right from wrong is what God has said in his word. He he went to war with the authority of the Bible, with this certain knowledge of God's opinion on this matter. I wonder if your beliefs about racial reconciliation, what they're built on, if they're built on the authority of God's word or something else, and if that something else can sustain it. So this is God's plan. This is God's plan. Now, secondly, this passage tells us that this reconciliation is produced by the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit. The Spirit in this passage is a sign. His presence among the Gentiles is the sign that convinced Peter and his companions that God was really at work in the Gentiles, just like he was at work among the Jews. The sign is the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit actually is the sign of the new age Everything is new. The Messiah has come. The Old Testament says when the Messiah comes, he will come with the power of the Spirit. And here the Spirit is manifest in this passage. The Spirit of God takes the work of the Son of God and applies it in time and personally to those who believe. Verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, verse 14 talks about the fact that you're going to get this message that through which you and all of your household will be saved. It's a message that saves, that the Spirit works out in us, supplies to us. Uh, Peter told them that the message that he was going to bring them was a message of, of peace. There exists, the Bible says, between God and human beings, not peace, but a state of hostility. It's a state of hostility that we have chosen, one we've created. It's, a, it's a, fueled by our consistent and our persistent rebellion against God. He's our creator. He's worthy of our allegiance, but not just because he's our creator, but because he's good. He is good and wise to ally yourself with him, to follow him. It's not what we choose. And thus we need to be saved, saved from God's wrath. Peter told Cornelius, Jesus Christ has come. He's come at God's appointment. He's come full of power, and he's come to be our sin bearer. He told him in Acts chapter 10. He hung on the cross and was cursed by God. He didn't deserve it, but he was punished for our sin. Not for his own sin, but for our sins. And he died and rose again. And everyone who believes in him has forgiveness in his name. Now, how is that forgiveness and that life applied? 
by the Spirit. By faith, the agent who brings it and applies it to us is the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, the Holy Spirit has come even to Gentiles. Look, I think this story reminds us about the significance of the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we tend to forget this. So the Holy Spirit uh, comes into a person's life. They don't have immediate external visible signs. Nobody turns blue when the Spirit comes on them. Or, you know, that there's not a stamp on your forehead. Holy Spirit indwells here. You know, there's nothing... Holy Spirit on board. There's nothing like that happens. And we're not perfect. We're far from perfect. But when you look at someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the Spirit, you are looking at a radically new person. A transformed person. A person who's been accepted by God, who's been renewed by God and raised by God. That's what all believers of Jesus have in common. We belong to the age of the Spirit. And that is a commonality that trumps all social, ethnic, racial, cultural, and national distinctions. The ones we put in place. It doesn't look like this, but don't be deceived by your eyes. Don't let your eyes deceive you. If you have a twin sister who is genetically identified, identical to you and she shares all of your DNA if it's all exactly the same but she is not a follower of Jesus Christ you have more in common with a 13 year old goat herder who lives in rural Kenya who lives in a hut and who doesn't speak English and has never been to school but who believes in Jesus than you do with her because of the Holy Spirit because of the work he does in all who believe. Oh, how we give thanks to God for the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, since I mentioned that Kenyan believer, I want to think for a little bit more, beyond a little bit, the dimensions of this text. These Jewish believers, they're struggling to understand how this new community that the Spirit is forming, how it can possibly have no national, no ethnic boundaries, and how is it going to work without a, a, a diet and a religious schedule or a temple. The gospel doesn't have culture like other faiths do. So how does this work? Let's think about the gospel and culture. And let me just say, I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes. I am far from an expert. Everything that I'm going to say in the next few minutes is not original with me. I've learned it from somebody. Uh, it's a massive issue. Remember a few minutes ago, though, I said that um, 22% of the world's Christians live in Africa. In 1900, the Christian population of Africa was about 9%. 9% in 1900. By 2000, the year 2000, it was 55%. Massive turning to Christ on the continent of Africa. Now, why is that? Uh, one of those men who turned to Christ during that period of 100 years, his name was Laman Sene. Laman Sene is from Gambia. And he's, he spent most of his work uh, teaching at Yale University. And a number of years ago, Laman Sine wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? Laman Sine said that Christianity is the least culturally imperialistic of all religions and it's the most culturally flexible of all worldviews. Now that might surprise you because... We hear, the narrative that we often hear from, in particular, secular people is that Christianity is a straitjacket, that, that Jesus tightens and binds and, and stifles people. Laman Sine says, well, 
in contrast to all other worldviews, Christianity is the least stifling and the most flexible. Now, why is that? Well, this passage in the book of Acts reminds us that uh, Christianity doesn't have any sort of book that guards life uh, like the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Christianity doesn't have anything like Sharia law in it. The requirements of the book of Leviticus and the requirements of Sharia law, they tend to flatten culture. They tend to make everything the same. Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity doesn't do that like secularism does either. Here's an example that Laman Sine uses. Laman Sine says, imagine a man who's born and raised in Africa. And he says, what is true of almost everyone who's born and raised in Africa is that they believe in spirits. That the world is populated with spirits. Good spirits, evil spirits, uh, uh, spirits are everywhere. And, and evil spirits are spirits that are to be feared. Now that man from Africa, let's imagine he flies. He's going to go to college. He's going to go to Paris or London or Manhattan, very secular places. And he lands and he's walking down the street of, let's say, Manhattan. And he meets an atheist. And the atheist says to him, Oh, you don't need to be afraid of evil spirits because... I'll tell you why. Spirits don't exist. And we're so happy that you're here because we love cultural diversity. Can you put on some of your native dress and sing your native songs and cook your native food? Because we love pluralism. Lamentine says, yeah, they love pluralism, but they gut everything from what we believe. Now, imagine here that that man uh, has flown to the United States or or London or Paris, and, and he meets a follower of Jesus. What does the follower of Jesus say to him? You don't need to be afraid of evil spirits. And I'll tell you why you don't need to be afraid of evil spirits. Because God has sent his son who is more powerful than any evil spirit. And you can trust in him. And what Laman Sine says is that secularists, what they want to make around the world is warmed over Europeans. And the gospel makes renewed Africans. And renewed Bolivians and renewed Canadians, and renewed Filipinos. The gospel is a message for every culture because it both affirms aspects of every culture and challenges aspects of every culture, and it transforms the lives of those who live in every culture. Actually, Christianity does more than that, doesn't it? See, Christianity is culturally flexible because Christians have an identity that is grounded in Jesus. Any other identity that you have excludes people. If you think of yourself primarily as a, as a good-looking person, you may exclude ugly people. If you think identity, your primary identity is in your wittiness, then you'll exclude dull people. If it's in your wealth, you'll exclude poor people. If it's in being white, you'll exclude dark-skinned people. But if your identity is in Jesus and it's secure in Jesus, you have a different attitude toward people who are different than you are. You can still challenge them. You can still disagree with them. But you can welcome them to find life in the Savior you have found life in. Christianity has no fixed culture, it has no fixed language, it has no fixed diet plan, but it has a fixed Savior who is Lord of all. Now, before we finish that, what I want to do before we finish this morning is I want to show you briefly one place, this is the third thing that I want to talk about, about where this cultural flexibility 
presses on believers. If Gentiles can become followers of Jesus and they don't have to follow the kosher laws to do it, then what do you do at the church potluck when there's a good Jew who follows kosher laws and a good Gentile and the Gentile brings scrapple to the church potluck? What do you do? How does that work? How are we going to put these two cultures together? Well, I want to take you to a passage of scripture where Paul deals with this. Romans 14. The last thing we're going to look at. So flip over with me if you would to Romans 14. Romans is right to the book of to the right of the book of Acts. So just flip a few pages through Acts and then you'll come to Romans. And I want to look at Romans chapter 14 and we're going to Get, show how this issue of the Jews and Gentiles together caused some practical problems and what Paul's advice about this was. Here's the problems. Two of them, Romans 14.1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling or dispute, over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Okay, so there's one issue. What, what are we going to eat at the church potluck? Verse 5 is another issue. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So if the early church meets on Sunday, probably Sunday nights, because they work on Sunday, but they meet on Sunday evenings because Sunday is Resurrection Day. That's when they're meeting here in the church in Rome. Uh, and then you have Jewish followers of Jesus who also keep the Sabbath on Saturday. How does that work? Can, could the church have a work day on Saturday? Uh, the Jews don't work on Saturday, the Jewish followers of Jesus. So how, what are we going to do here? How's that going to work? Now, how do I know that the background issue is Jewish-Gentile issues? Skip down with me to chapter 15, verse... Eight, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promise made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. These are Jewish and Gentile issues that he's working on here. A conscientious Jew might never eat meat unless he knows for sure it's been killed in a kosher style. So what do they do? Again, what do they serve at the church banquet? Well, here's the principle that this passage is teaching. Uh, when we have these cultural differences, for cultural differences that are secondary to the gospel, we accept and welcome and accommodate and tolerate. For cultural differences like this that are secondary to the gospel... We accept and respect and accommodate. Now, let me show you that in this passage here. Look, verse. Uh, we, don't, we don't judge one another. We don't uh, look down on each other. We accept and tolerate and accommodate. Verse 3 of Romans 14. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Skip down to verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. The whole chapter here, the whole argument, leads to chapter 15, 
verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this passage in terms of of the conflict between Jews and Gentiles, but it should help you think about some of our own cultural differences. Christianity has no dietary restrictions. Christianity has no sacred space. Christianity has no dress code. Think about that. We argue about what what we wear to church. It's so important, the Jews, this is so important to them that they've got to keep the food laws. And now, in the church, they're supposed to accept and tolerate. Sometimes people do this to me, and they almost always do it with a a jocular attitude. They ask me, they tell me, where's your tie you should be wearing today? Or they, they say to me, you should... You, if you ever, if I come to this church and your shirt is not tucked in on Sunday morning, oh. For a number of weeks uh, last year, I came to church and I found a new tie in my mailbox every week. Someone was giving me a new tie. Um, Christianity has no dress code. Christianity has no dress code. We have no dress code in our church. Now imagine that you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Think about this. You're from Tulsa. I'm going to stereotype. If you're from Tulsa and you're not like this, I'm sorry. Just stereotyping for a minute. So imagine you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you're reading the Bible, Acts 1-8, be witnesses of mine to the ends of the earth. So you leave Tulsa and you go to Mumbai, India. And you land in Mumbai, India, and you discover after a few days that people are looking at you a little weird because you've got a really big belt buckle and you have cowboy boots on, and your Wrangler jeans, and your chaps, and your hat, and spurs, and you're walking around Tulsa, Oklahoma, or you're walking around Mumbai, India, dressed like that, and people say, that is just a little strange. And you think, ah, culture. It's just culture. That's all it is. So uh, it doesn't control or impede your attitude in talking to people about Jesus. It doesn't it doesn't change how you share your life as followers of Jesus. It's just cultures. Tulsa and Mumbai, they're different places. Now let's change the scenario a little bit and let's put together a 75-year-old follower of Jesus and a 15-year-old follower of Jesus. And they walk into church together. And regardless of, of which one of these you are in this scenario, let's just imagine here, you might be tempted to look at the other person and say, what a legalist. He's all about the rules. All he cares about is what people look on the outside. I don't know any 75-year-old member of our church who ever has that thought. But you might be tempted to think that about them. Or you might be tempted to look at, at the other person and say, that kid has no reverence at all, no respect for God. That's just sloppy. It's not rules, it's not reverence, it's not sloppiness, it's culture, and it's secondary to the gospel. You're not called to love other cultures, you're not called to like them, but you are called to embrace the followers of Jesus within them. If you don't get the power of verses 5 and 6, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other, if you don't get it, I wonder if you're making cultural issues primary, not secondary. 
Uh, music might be another issue here. As best I can tell from the Bible, it matters very little when the music we sing was written. It doesn't matter about its beat, its rhythm, its form. What matters, is, as best I can tell from the, God, the Bible, is whether or not we can sing it together. Singing it together is the important part about the music. School choice might enter into here as a secondary issue, or uh, hairstyles, or piercings, or tattoos. There's a host of cultural issues like this, aren't there? God begins something in Acts chapter 10 and 11 that was absolutely beautiful. Gentiles and Jews together in one church. What he also began, not only was it beautiful, but it was thorny. The source of conflicts. People had to be consistently reminded and consistently remind themselves it's the gospel. It's the gospel that we preach that's primary. This news about Jesus that is primary. Now I've barely scratched the surface of of some of these things. We're going to come back to them a little bit when we get to Acts chapter 15. These issues come up again and again in the Bible as they struggle with this. They struggle, but it's worth struggling because it's about race and ethnicity. It's about the gospel. It's about culture, and it's about acceptance and love. We talk about it because our union as followers of Jesus Christ is God's plan, and it's something that the Spirit is working in us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning and we, we sit under this story again of what you were doing among the early church. And, and we confess, Father, that it's, it's so far removed from us. We sometimes struggle to feel the weight of it. Lord, I pray that you would, um, as you helped these Jewish followers of Jesus, as you, as you changed them, through the evidence of your good plan and your work, Lord, I pray that you would change us too, that we would revel in the primariness of the gospel and that we would see it to be ever more beautiful in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus, whether they look like us uh, or not. Lord, we thank you that your good message is... is um, useful and true and relevant for all people, all kinds of people all around the world. We delight to see how your, your followers were, were, are carrying this message and we pray that you would increase our love and devotion for that same cause. We pray these things because we're followers of Jesus and he has appointed us to this task and he has called us to live with one another in love. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen. Amen.